the first epistle to Timothy. Now, Timothy was a young man, and uh, Paul, when he wrote the book of Timothy, was in prison, and he was realizing that he would have to turn over the care of the churches to somebody else. And out of all the young men that worked with him, he must have uh, felt that Timothy would be the one that should take over his responsibilities. And so he was giving him, in both First and Second Timothy, some very key instruction. But of course, it's not just for pastors, it's also for all of us. That's why he instructed Timothy, so that he would direct the church in that way. And uh, so today we're going to be looking at First Timothy 1, 5 through 7, and I've entitled this one, Beware of False Teaching. <clears throat> Verse 5 says, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Now, this is not the only time Paul has expressed that first phrase. And I like the way it's worded in Romans 13, verse 10. It says, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. So the whole last six commandments are summed up there. If you are loving to your neighbor, then you won't break any of those commandments. That's what he's saying. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So as he's speaking to Timothy, he's saying the real issue is love. If you will practice love, as the Bible has uh, spoken about it, then you won't have to worry about the law because you'll be keeping the law. That's, that's the end of the law. That's, and of course, Jesus is the example as he came to earth. And if we love people like he did and love the Father like he did, then we have fulfilled the law. The law simply explains how love operates. That's all. And because we are born in a world of sin, <clears throat> we sometimes don't recognize how love should be. So God spelled it out a little more, but uh, Paul brings us back to the real issue here, and he says, if you love God with all your heart, your neighbor as yourself, then that's the fullness of the law. <clears throat> Now, also, in this uh, text, he brings three things that go along with keeping the law through love. And we're going to look at each one of them. The first one, he says, is a pure heart. Now, there are other texts in the Bible that use that, put those two words together. In Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, says, Who shall ascend 
into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. So having a pure heart is pretty important. Uh, all those that will stand before God will have to have a pure heart. And of course, the clean hands go along with the pure heart because if the hands are not clean in the sense he's talking about, then the heart's not pure either because the heart is where all of our actions come from. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully. So he gives several things there, but the key issue is a pure heart. All those things come when a person has a pure heart. And talking to young people, in the second epistle to Timothy, in uh, chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Flee also youthful lusts. Now, unfortunately, the devil has special traps for the young because he knows they lack the experience yet of many things. And so Timothy was young and he was still in danger. And so Paul said, now make sure, Timothy, that you don't get involved with youthful lust, but instead, but follow righteousness, faith, charity or love, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It's kind of like telling Timothy, if you don't have a pure heart, you're going to go after youthful lust. But if you let God give you a pure heart, then you can turn away, you can follow righteousness, you can exercise faith, you can have love and peace. Now, of course, we studied peace earlier uh, the world is looking for the kind of peace where there's no war, there's nobody mistreating them, everything around them is peaceful. That is not the peace of the Bible. The peace of the Bible is peace within. And you can be in the middle of war, you can be in the middle of persecution, you can be in the middle of all kinds of bad things, but you have peace. That's the kind of peace that he's telling Timothy if you have a pure heart, then you can have uh, that as well. And in 1 Peter 1, it says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart. And he adds another word here fervently. Love one another with a pure heart, fervently. Well, what does a pure heart mean here? Uh, well, first let me mention how I, uh, I concluded, how do we get a pure heart? I believe from what I read, it is through conversion. That's the only way to get a pure heart. You cannot come up with it. You cannot clean up your heart. You cannot... Uh, uh, force yourself to have a pure heart. And he can give it to us, though. 
And when he gives it to us, it affects everything in our life. And it leads us to, to move by different principles because we now have a new heart, which he calls here a pure heart. But back to the idea of loving the brethren, it says, one another with a pure heart fervently. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to make believe that we love each other. And so when we see each other, we're always friendly and nice and so on. And then when we're not together, we say bad things about each other. We uh, criticize one another and, and do things that are not loving. So what he's saying here is don't have that kind of love. Have the real love, even fervently, for each other. You know, I've, I've probably said this before, but to me it's the best illustration I know of. It may be that we don't always make each other perfectly happy. We do things or say things or fail to do things or say things that are irritating. I never used to think I irritated anybody, but I found out I did. And so, you know, I had to realize that uh, if I irritate them, they better... Uh, they probably will irritate me. And if I want them to be happy with me, I, I have to be happy with them, right? <clears throat> but an illustration came to my mind. Uh, if we are at war, and I didn't see too much war, but I, I saw some, and there's somebody in the foxhole next to you or on the patrol going with you somewhere, uh, and they step on your toe, you don't worry about that. You're glad that there's somebody else there to help face the enemy. And that's the way a church is to be. It's, it's a place where all of us are enrolled in a warfare against the enemy. And we need every one of us. We don't need any discouraged members who are discouraged because of what other members said or did about them. We don't need that. We need members that are all ready to go and to win the battle. And to do that, it requires this pure heart, which then leads to fervent love for each other. In the Adventist home, page 425, it says, of all things that are sought, cherished, and cultivated, there is nothing so valuable in the sight of God as a pure heart. So, you know, the Bible tells us to go after a lot of things. But the top of the list is to go after a pure heart, apparently. Because it is to be of all things that are sought, cherished, and cultivated there is nothing so valuable in the sight of God as a pure heart. And then it kind of defines a little bit what is a pure heart do? A disposition imbued with thankfulness and peace. So whenever we see someone that's thankful, we know that the, the pure heart is either fully there or developing in them because it leads to thankfulness 
It leaves the peace not to war, especially with each other, but to peace. Another one I found in the story of Jesus, page 60. This, this is a condensed version of Desire of Ages for Children. It's really a special book. And I've noticed that some very beautiful thoughts that don't appear in Desire of Ages appear in this one. Jesus had come to restore the true worship of God. He was to bring in a pure heart religion. Unfortunately, in the, the Old Testament, not very many people had the pure religion. They didn't have a pure heart. And the religion had become just a lot of formality, a lot of, uh, you know, performing certain duties. And they thought they were religious because they performed those duties. And Jesus said, that's, that's not satisfying religion. And so when he came, he tried to make a change. Jesus had come to restore, see, that's the way it was supposed to be in the beginning, restore the true worship of God. He was to bring in a pure heart religion that would manifest itself in a pure life and a holy character. You think he's still trying to do that? He's not happy, especially with an Adventist church that doesn't have that. He wants us to recognize that the only true Adventism is the kind of religious experience that Jesus was trying to bring in his day. And yet, we have to face the fact that we have the same danger that the Jews did. You know, God is, I'm sure all, uh, all religions face this, but the one that Satan hates the most is ours because we have been entrusted with special truth that has not been given to others. Not that he didn't want to give it to them, but, you know, they weren't prepared to receive it. And so he works the hardest on us. And we need to get to where we recognize if our religious experience has slipped to where it's starting to be more like the Jewish religion than like the religion that Jesus came to, to give us. And then, you know, we can get back our first love, as Revelation says. That's what is the result of the kind of pure heart religion that Jesus wanted to bring. And in Christ Object Lessons 2.23, says he cannot accept a divided heart. So we can't have a pure heart if it's divided. The heart that is absorbed in earthly affections cannot be given up to God. Now notice the key word there is absorbed. We have to do things that belong to this world. We have to do things to make a living. There are things that we have to be involved in. But the issue is, is that all absorbing to us? Or is it the things of heaven that is all absorbing? 
And uh, so if we are trying to do both, we have a divided heart. If we're all absorbed with the world, but we're trying to be all absorbed with heaven, it doesn't work. And he cannot accept the divided heart. He has to lead us to a point to where we say, you know, the things of this world are just not satisfying. And I want to make you my focus. And when that decision is made, then he is able to, uh, to really work with us and give us all the things that we're talking about here today. The second thing that it mentions is that we need to have, Timothy needed to have a good conscience. Here's what Paul said over in Acts 23, 1 about himself. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Isn't that a wonderful testimony? I won't ask you if you can give that testimony today, but I hope the Holy Spirit will help you think it through. Can I give that testimony? Could I say that I have been, ever since I became a Christian, I have lived in all good conscience before God? Well, if we're not there yet, there's still time. Fortunately, from this time forward, God wants us to have a good conscience like Paul had. 1 Peter 3.16 says, Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Now that's an interesting one because he's saying you didn't get in trouble because you did anything wrong. You got in trouble for your religion. Just like, you know, the people that were inspecting Daniel. <coughs> in the book of Daniel, they, they finally gave up. They said, we can't find anything bad that he's done. There's, we have only one hope, and that's to find something to do with his religion. And, of course, that's where they hatched up the idea about the prayer. But this, uh, we're being told by Peter that as Christians, God wants us to have a, a clean conscience. And, of course, if you fall, the way to get it back is to confess and, you know, make it right. But it's even better if we listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and we don't do the wrong. That's the best way to keep a, a good conscience. And so as, as Peter uh, tries to help us here, he said, there's only one way that it's okay to be thought evil, and that's for your religion, for practicing truth, for living up to the truth. If people think you're evil for that, it doesn't mean you have a bad conscience. Hebrews uh, 13, verse 18. Oh, yeah, and one other point there. He's saying, now, often people don't do this on the outside. They don't show it on the outside. But inside, they're ashamed because they know you're a godly person. They're ashamed. They can't point out any evil deeds that you're doing. And so they're ashamed that they're treating you that way. 
but you know for other reasons they're they're going to do it hebrews 13 18 says pray for us for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly so here paul is inviting prayer he's not just trusting you know that he will keep a good conscience but he's asking for prayer because he wants to have a good conscience. He wants to follow what God is asking him to do. And one of the ways he points out, honestly, we can't have a good conscience if we're not honest. We have to be honest about the truth that we hear. We have to be honest in all of our business dealings with everybody. We have to be honest with God. So honesty is a big factor in keeping a good conscience. And 1 Timothy 1.19, just a little ways farther than where we're studying, he comes back to this point, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. So here he points out that if you start being satisfied without having a good conscience. If you think it's okay to live without a good conscience, you're going to make shipwreck of faith because one thing leads to another and so on. So the only safe way is to keep a, a clean conscience. Now, since uh, they're not here, I'm going to share an example of this. For several years, uh, someone has been giving some money to help my travel expenses and overseas travel expenses, not the local ones. But uh, when I go to preach in Russia or some other place, uh, they were giving for that. But the time came where I had given them a lot of Bible studies. In fact, I finished the whole series of Bible studies. And uh, even uh, the wife was baptized. And so my conscience started bothering me about taking that money. I said, you know, uh, I need to ask. And of course, it's tithe from the husband's uh, salary, not the wife's. So... I spoke to the husband and I said to him, I said, I need you to prayerfully consider what this money is that you're giving. Because I said, if it's tithe, I don't feel comfortable accepting it for the travel. And uh, he said, well, but I like helping you. I said, well, uh, you know, I, I just don't feel comfortable accepting it please think it through and let me know well they took a long time but this week i got a phone call and the message was we see it as tithe so that left me with no regular money for travel so what i told him was i said he, he was worried you know about it. i said don't worry i said the lord has another way to take care of that. Plus, I'm not going to do as much travel anyway as I had been doing. It's too hard 
too hard on me at this point. So this same week, only a day or two after, day. oh, it was the same day. <laughs> same day, somebody called and they said, I got a business deal for you. And the end of the business deal is that some money is going to be coming. So, yeah. you know, I didn't expect the Lord to work that. We're not involved in that. It's their business deal. Right. They're going to send us the money. Yeah, they're just, they're going to do the work and the money's going to come to me <laughs> or to us. So uh, it'll be put in for the travel. So anyway, you know, those experiences test us because when you face something and you, your conscience begins to tell you that you need to do this, that is a key moment. If you want to keep a good conscience, you have to do it, what God is telling you to do. In the first volume of Mind, Character, and Personality, page 320, it says, His character needs to be transformed before he can have a good conscience, void of offense toward God and man. So when we are first being drawn to Christ, we don't have a good conscience. We've got all kinds of things that we did we shouldn't have done. But as we come to Christ, he is able to change that and then enable us to keep a good conscience. Here's what has to happen, though. Self must die, and Christ must take possession of the soul temple. When, by rejecting the light that God has given, men abuse and trample upon the conscience, they are in fearful danger. So it takes a miracle, really, but he doesn't force it, so we have to accept it. We have to be willing to see our need and accept that power in our life. And then self can die. Jesus takes charge of our soul temple. And now we can have a pure conscience. Now to keep that pure conscience, we have to not reject any light that God shines upon our pathway. And there's, there's two ways that I thought of that people reject the light. First one is they say, well, it's not true. What, what you said or, you know, what the Bible said, that's not true. And, of course, then they're going to reject it because they don't believe it's true. If God says it, we can't afford to reject it. Now, if it's just human opinion, maybe there's room to reject some things. But if it's from the Word of God, then we must be careful not to reject it. We might have to pray for strength to do it, to practice it, to obey it, but we don't want to reject it. That's dangerous because we can't keep a good conscience that way. The second way that people do is they say, oh, I'm not convicted. Yeah, that's what it says, but I'm not convicted. I don't have to do it because I'm not convicted. The thought that comes to my mind is if, if it's there, if God said it and you're not convicted, shame on you. You should be convicted because God said it. And so be careful. Don't get a bad conscience because 
You just say, I'm not convicted, or it's not true. There might be some other ways, but those came to my mind. From Historical Sketches, page 212, it says, We read in the Bible of a good conscience, and there are not only good, but bad consciences. You know, I knew one uh, young man in the army that had a bad conscience. He came from New York City, and he told me one day as we were talking, he said, if I have a chance to steal something and I don't do it, my conscience bothers me. <laughs> that was the first time I ever heard anybody say that, to have their conscience bother them because they didn't steal. They had the opportunity, but they didn't take it. There is a conscientiousness that will carry everything to extremes and make Christian duties as burdensome as the Jews made the observance of the Sabbath. Now that's probably not what you expected with a bad conscience. And both are true. What I said about that young man from New York, that's a bad conscience. But here's another bad conscience on the opposite side. That, you know, some, and maybe all of you, have been hurt by one of these people because unfortunately, Wildwood has a tendency to draw people like this. They're not all like this, but there are some that are drawn to Wildwood that are exactly like it says here. And they go around terrorizing people with their extreme views of various things. And this is a bad conscience. Now, they think they're doing, you know, what their conscience is telling them to do. But God says, I'm sorry, you got a bad conscience. You're taking things too far. And maybe you're also uh, getting after somebody that it's not their time yet for them to face that truth. So uh, be, we don't want to have that bad conscience. On one hand, God wants us to be faithful, to follow all the light that comes across our path, but not to go beyond the mark and not to be terrorizing people with it, but to uh, have the conscience that tells us, no, it's not the right time to tell them, or uh, that's not really the way that this truth needs to be practiced. And uh, God will help us with that too, if we're willing to be helped. <coughs> okay, this is uh, two paragraphs that come from Councils to the Church, page 314. The idea is entertained by many that a man may practice anything that he conscientiously believes to be right. I won't ask for a show of hands, but that's a very widely thought idea. That if I think it's okay to do it, it's okay to do it. But the question is, has the man a well-instructed good conscience, or is it biased and warped by his own preconceived opinions? 
<coughs> conscience is not to take the place of thus saith the Lord. Well, how can we cure that one? We have to be studying. We have to be reading. And if we read something that shows that our conscience wasn't in the right path, we have to be corrected by the word. And if we're willing to always be corrected by the word, then we can have a good conscience. And we can practice what the conscience tells us to because it's a good conscience. It is guided by the word of God. It goes on to say, God's people taught by the inspiration of truth and led by a good conscience to live, notice this part, by every word of God will take his law written in their hearts as the only authority which they can acknowledge or consent to obey. The wisdom and authority of the divine law are supreme. So if we want to have a good conscience, we have to be willing to both study. We can't just stay in ignorance and say, well, uh, the light I have now is enough, and as long as I practice that, it's okay. We can't do that. We have to be interested in more, and a conscience that will be corrected through the Word of God, that is the good conscience that he was telling Timothy that he needed to have. And this is the one that he wants every member of the Adventist church to have. Now the third one that he talked about was faith unfeigned. Now the word unfeigned uh, means that a person is sincere. It means that there's no hypocrisy. That's the definition in Strong's Concordance. I'm not a Greek or Hebrew scholar, but they do it for us, and that's the meaning of that word unfeigned. So, we read one about unfeigned love, and this one's about faith unfeigned. The same is true of both. We are not to fake it. That is not God's plan, and we don't have to fake it. We serve a powerful God. If there's something we don't have, he will give it to us in answer to prayer. And so we never have to say, well, you know, I just would like to be like that, but I can't help it on some other, you know, way that I don't want to be. But we can seek him for the help so that our faith is not hypocritical, but it is exactly what we are, what you see is what you get. That's what we say sometimes. And that is the way it is to be in the Adventist church. He comments also in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5. He says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. I thought it was interesting. 1.5 talks about unfeigned faith. 2.5, uh, no, 2.1, uh, 2 Timothy 
1.5 in both books, he talks about unfeigned faith. And he says, you got it, no doubt, because your mother and your grandmother had it, and you received it too. And so that's, these are three things that drew Paul to Timothy, recognizing that he would be a good instrument to carry on the work. <clears throat> in a manuscript in 1900, it says, To love God supremely and our neighbor as ourselves requires a pure, clean heart, a good conscience, and a faith unfeigned. A faith that works by love and purifies the soul from all defilement. So what is faith unfeigned? It is a faith that is motivated by love and that it will purify everything out of our life that ought not to be there from every defilement. It will accomplish that. You can see why these three things are so important. And we should be craving and longing for those three things in our life. Another uh, one from a, another manuscript, 1890. The two blended the gospel of Christ and the law of God produce the love and faith unfeigned. Now, that's a key statement. If we have the gospel by itself, and I'm afraid that there is a big imbalance that is taking place today. People are waking up to the fact that years ago, we didn't talk very much about the gospel. So now, all we talk about is the gospel. All that does is unbalance the ship in the opposite direction. And if you're in a canoe, you don't want that. It can roll over pretty easy. And so notice that it takes two things, the gospel of Christ and the law of God. Now, if all we focus on is the law of God, we get like they were years ago when it was said that the sermons were dry as the hills of Gilboa. And, you know, the members, I'm sure, were in the same condition because that's what they were listening to. But when the two are blended together, when we understand and are experiencing the gospel, but at the same time are seeking to follow that law carefully, fully, completely, seeking to follow that law, when those two things are blended, that produces, it says here, the love and faith unfeigned. So <clears throat> God knows how to do it. We just need to follow the plan. And in a letter of 1894, it says, faith unfeigned must be cherished. Do we really want to have faith unfeigned? Do we, do we really want our experience to reflect what's going on in the heart? If we do, 
If that's our desire, our crave, he will see to it that we have it. Faith unfeigned must be cherished. It must become the basis of all true action. So, I think we better stop there for today. Uh, we'll get to the other part another time. But let, let me just back up here to the uh, text. Now, the end of the commandment is charity or love out of a pure heart. And then he describes those three things that he knew Timothy would need. Paul had them. He wasn't preaching without practicing. And he was saying, Timothy, you need this. You need to have a pure heart. Make sure that you allow Jesus to live in your heart to change you and to make you that new being every day. Paul said, I die daily. And so he says to Timothy, you need to have the same thing. And if you will allow Jesus to put a pure heart in you and you'll, and you'll not tarnish it, that will be, you'll be the kind of leader that you need to be. Second, he says, you need a good conscience. You need one that's corrected by the word of God so that it's pointed straight. And then you need to make sure that when your conscience tells you not to do it, that you won't do it. You need to preserve that good conscience. And all of this is accomplished by faith, but not a fake faith, a genuine faith that really knows how to lay hold of God's power and through his power to keep the law by the power of the gospel. It's through the power of the gospel that we keep the law. And so, as those two are blended now, Timothy, God will be able to use you in my place to carry on the work that God has started through me.